Ah, the late 70s and early 80s. The boom years of the video game industry. And my game system was the Magnavox Odyssey 2. Sleek, stylish, futuristic, and totally underappreciated. Let's change that. I'll dig through the Odyssey 2 library, introduce you to each game, offer a few of my own expanded memories of playing them back in the day, and we'll see if those games hold up today. I'm Earl Green, and this is Select Game. Welcome back to Select Game. Our topic this month is loving the aliens. We're kind of going back into space. Of course, I don't really know if that's a function of the of my own predilection for space and sci-fi games, or if that's a function of the fact that that was just a very easy topic for game programmers in the late 70s and early 80s. I'm Earl Green. I'm back. I probably sound a little bit different. Here's the story. I got myself a much better microphone for doing this podcasting jazz. Um, <laughs> if you've been watching the uh, the Facebook page for the logbook, you've probably noticed that every every month there's been a select game podcast. There's been a bit of a give and take on the uh, bit of been a conversation about the sound quality, and I get it. Been wanting a better mic for some time, and then on Amazon one weekend, I uh, I happened to notice that there was a Blue Yeti that had been, basically it had been removed from its original packaging, did not have its original docks, but it was still attached to the stand and it still had the USB cable, which the USB cable is not a biggie, you know, USB cables like that are maybe not a dime a dozen, but they're three bucks at Best Buy. And that showed up on Amazon for less than half price that you would pay for a brand new Blue Yeti microphone. The seller indicated that it was it was like new, barely used, there was nothing wrong with it, apparently it was just not what the original buyer had in mind. This thing showed up at just the wrong time, because at the time, you know, I'm kind of under a constant budget crunch from hell. <laughs> Things have changed on the home front slightly. I can't just drop 65 bucks on an impulse buy. But I bookmarked that item and told myself, okay, next payday, whether it's really a good idea or not, next payday I'm getting this thing. And so I did. Podcasting is going to be a huge part of the logbook's future. Bod podcasting and book projects are really where it's at. Now, I continue to update the site itself, the written content on the site. But since a lot of the site is review-based, book reviews, music reviews, that sort of thing, um, I don't always have the budget to get new stuff to review, so there's sort of a, a limiter there. But... Podcasting is such a big deal. Let me explain. I outline... I do an outline for select game by episode, but I also have an outline for it by what I call season, 
with the intent of doing 10 episodes a year plus a, you know, an option for a Christmas episode. And there are seasons outlined for Select Game, you know, broadly, what topics will be covered on a month-by-month basis running through mid-2018. I could probably stretch that out another year if I added some games to it that I just don't care that much about, like bowling and basketball. I'll cover them eventually. I'll cover them eventually. You have to. You know, if you're committing to covering the entire library of a given system, you kind of have to. So, there's that. I hope this addresses some of the sound quality issues. I've got a... I've got a cheap stand for the microphone, and the microphone itself is attached to the stand (laughs) with zip ties. Uh, The stand is really not heavy enough. I need something with a decent weighted base. That's just going to have to wait until it's in the budget. And a proper shock mount for the microphone itself, so I don't have to zip tie the desk stand to the microphone holder on this mic stand. (laughs) Which I'll show you a picture of that with the uh, you know with the podcast notes on the page. It's it's kind of an ungainly. It it's really kind of a, a cheap setup, but it was everything I could do to get the microphone. The microphone is everything I hoped and dreamed. Hopefully, it's easier on your ears as well. Now, the reason for mentioning all this is that I have been recording select game out of order. Not out of order like that arcade machine that was always off every time you walked past it. Uh, We're talking about out of order as in you are not hearing things in the order in which I recorded them. This one I am actually re-recording because there have been some news developments and I thought, you know what, what the hell, I've got this new microphone, let's just re-record the whole thing. So this is actually version 2.0 of this episode. I already had it completely recorded and I completely ditched what was recorded before for this and you know, not exactly a hard sell if it sounds better. Some of the gameplay segments for upcoming episodes, including this one, were recorded with the old setup, with the little portable, little portable MP3 voice recorder that has a bandwidth ceiling of 128 kbps. So there will be some variances in sound quality. It's my intention going forward to do the gameplay segments with this microphone. And but just be aware that there are some there will be some instances of gameplay segments that were recorded, you know, months before now that will not show up until some of them won't show up till next year because I've kind of juggled things around in my outline a bit. And so just be prepared for that. Eventually, it will all sound good. And I'm, I'm really about to run out of gameplay segments that haven't already been used in the show. Uh, the, other, the big exception to all this will be the Christmas episode, which is already completely in the can. Because I woke up one morning way too early. I woke up at about uh, 5.30 one morning, and it's like, you know what? Um, let's do this. Let's do this. You know, I know what it's about. I know what I want to say. I know what I want to play. So I recorded the whole thing, gameplay segments and host segments, all in one really disjointed shot. You'll be able to tell (laughs) that I woke up too early that morning. But uh, that'll be the last one where the entire show 
is recorded with the old headset and voice recorder setup. And let me say this about that. The, uh, the headset voice recorder setup happened because I had two friends help me out, you know, in even tighter times than I'm in right now, you know, back when I was chronically underemployed. Uh, one of them gave me a Best Buy gift card that bought the voice recorder, and the other one sent me the, the headset, which is actually, you know, one of these PC gaming headsets. It, it may not have been too easy on the ears, but it was a hell of a lot better than nothing. I am the kind of guy who, you know, I may have aspirations, but I'm grateful for what I've got, eternally grateful. Because, you know, if someone runs up to you and hands you five bucks, you've got two options. You can be a bit of an ass and say, oh, you know, I really wanted 25 bucks. Or you can say, you know what, that's five bucks I didn't have before. And I kind of fall into the latter camp by default. Yeah, I may have grown up much more financially privileged as a kid than I am as an adult. In a way, I think that helps you to appreciate things a little bit more. In the news. In the news for this month. Boy, we've, we've got some real bummers off the top here. I'm very sad to report that Joyce Worley Katz has passed away. She died on July 30th. Joyce Worley, for those of you of a certain age who have been in the video gaming hobby about as long as I have and got into it about the same time I did, Joyce was one of the triumvirate of editors that ran Electronic Games Magazine. Joyce Worley was married to Arnie Katz, or she... Uh, yeah, she was married to Arnie Katz. She and Arnie were both editors, as was Bill Kunkel, who also left us several years ago. Um, I, I have to admit, I spent so much time in Bill's company in person, I have to try real hard not to... I, I have to concentrate on saying Joyce, because I am so used to Bill with that New York accent of his saying, Jorce, Jorce, no, Bill, it's Joyce. He spent more time around her than I did, so <laughs> I guess he I guess he can get away with that. But uh, Joyce Worley Katz. She was also, I did not know this until I read uh, Chris Kohler's excellent, excellent um, obituary that he wrote about her at Wired.com. I did not realize that she was the organizer of the 1969 Worldcon. Now, Worldcon is the annual science fiction convention. It's held in a different location somewhere in the world every year. Hence, of course, Worldcon. And Worldcon, wherever it is that year, is where the Hugo Awards are given to science fiction authors and artists of note. And Joyce herself was a Hugo nominee in the fanzine category... Um, I don't know if it was that same year or not. And so she turned this fanzine writing, fanzine editing gig, she turned pro with it because she became one of the editors at Electronic Games. And she was also, her big thing during Electronic Games, if you were reading it at that time, was she managed, she did most of the reviews of the handheld games, the tabletop LED games, like... Um, you know, Electronic Battleship or the Coleco Mini Arcades, Little Pac-Man and Galaxian Machines, that sort of thing. And 
that was really her her bailiwick at Electronic Games. But there was a secondary publication, especially during in the boom years of the video game industry, which it seems like I talk about boom years a lot on this podcast. During the boom years, Electronic Games kind of sprouted a tentacle, and it was this bi-monthly newsletter called Arcade Alley. And it was not really typeset. It was very fanzine-ish, Arcade Alley was. And Joyce was over that. That was her baby. And so that's kind of where that fanzine DNA crept into the professional world. Joyce was also one of the one of the magazine's connections to Magnavox and North American Phillips. And that was how my own interactions with Joyce came into play. About, I'm going to say, 12, 13, 14 years ago, I was looking at doing a book about the rise and fall of the Odyssey 2. And believe it or not, this is the most original thing in the world. I already had in my head the book was going to be called Select Game. And I contacted Bill Kunkel for advice and information, and he said, you need to talk to Joyce, because that was her thing. She was really our point of contact with the Odyssey people. And so she was, and I corresponded with her several times early on in that project, and she provided me contact information that was hopefully still up to date. Some of it was, some of it wasn't. You have to keep in mind, even 12, 13, 14 years ago, it had been a long time since the Odyssey two years for anyone at Magnavox or NAP. And so some of those, some of the contact information was dead end. Some of it was literally a dead end. The, uh, you know, not all of the people were still with us, sadly. And I found that I really didn't have enough information for a book. And so what notes I was able to gather with Joyce's help back then, they make their way into this podcast. So this is a this is a significant thing. This kind of hurts. I I also feel obligated to point out Joyce's significance in on the topic of women in video games. This has been for whatever reason, and I don't know why this is. This has been an area of great struggle and drama over the past few years with the the debate over feminist discussion feminist analysis of video games and you know do women have a place in that field as developers or anything else let me answer that for you really quickly on behalf of Joyce Worley Katz the answer is hell yes hell yes they do who in the world would think they didn't it was anyone even paying attention to the roster of Atari programmers early on? You had Carla Meninsky at Atari. You had Carol Shaw at Activision. And, yes, working with Ed Averett on the Odyssey 2 library, you had Linda Averett. Yes, women have always been a part of the fabric, of the landscape of video games at every level. And Joyce was a pioneer in that as well because she helped to create this whole field of journalism that people take for granted these days. And it's also, I'm going to say this, and I'm probably going to piss a few people off, it's an area of journalism that has fallen from grace with the advent of the Internet. It's really hard to find deep video game review and critique and analysis that 
you know, peels back the layers like it's a piece of literature and isn't, you know, isn't on a very amateurish, childish level. Oh, man, that sucks. That's not analysis. That's some bro, some dude bro sitting in his basement saying, Oh, it sucks. That's not critique. And Joyce was a pioneer of critiquing, critiquing games as an art form. You know, as were Arnie and Bill. People who think women should not have a place at the gaming culture table do not truly understand the history of this art form and need to grow the hell up. Anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to turn the passing of an acquaintance. I, I would say a friend, I just didn't... I didn't get to know Joyce, you know, on the social level that I knew Bill Kunkel. Uh, she was already having health issues at the time that I was corresponding with her. And, you know, it is to my discredit that I fell out of contact with her and didn't check up on her frequently. So, anyway, there's that note about Joyce Worley Cats. It is, uh, it hasn't really gotten a huge amount of attention except among us old farts in the video game field, and it should be getting more attention because she was a pioneer, like many of the other women I mentioned. They simply don't get their due. That's right, Obi. Uh, another significant passing, uh, Seymour... I can't... I honestly don't know. I am really bad at transliterating French... <laughs> pronunciations, and I don't even know if this is a French name. I don't know if it's Papert or Papert. He was a programmer at MIT, and he was the inventor of the Logo educational programming language. Now, if you were a kid with a computer like I was in the early 80s, you probably ran into Logo at some point, either at school or elsewhere, which was this programming language that was more akin to robotics than really a pure programming language. You had a turtle, a triangular cursor on the screen called a turtle and with logo you would give it directions you you know you had you turn this many degrees and you advance this many steps and you could set up a recurring thing a recurring incremental program of instructions and it could come up with this spirograph type stuff at least that's what I always did with logo he was the inventor of that language and a lot of your initiatives that you have nowadays about uh, teaching coding to kids can be traced back to Logo in the 80s, and so that is a another significant passing. Let's move on to some news that is not a total bummer. I've been telling you for months now that I was working on the cover art for an Odyssey 2 game, the manual cover art, and I am happy to tell you that it is just around the corner. Hopefully, in early fall, PackRatVG.com will be releasing the 50-foot-tall stock of celery. Yes, that is the game that I did the cover art for. When that comes out, I'm actually going to devote a little bit of talk time to the, the evolution of that cover, because uh, <laughs> it was a long, torturous process. For reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with Packrat, have absolutely nothing to do with the programmer, and have everything to do with the fact that 
somewhere between getting a new job and getting a divorce, I was not exactly <laughs> at my optimum level at the time that I was supposed to be coming up with this cover. It is entirely my fault that this game took this long to come out, and I apologize. <clears throat> Packrat also let me know that there will be a game called Carl Artillery. Uh, think along the lines of Artillery Duel for the Bally Astro K. That will be coming out for the Odyssey 2. He says about a month after 50 foot tall stalk of celery. Both of those from packratvg.com, and I will, of course, include the obligatory link to Packrat. Another new game has come out. This one is not for the Odyssey 2, but I want to talk about it anyway. This kind of deals with the elephant in the room. You know, I've been talking about my personal voyage with the Odyssey 2. There, there's an elephant in the room I haven't talked about, and that is what stole me away from the Odyssey 2? What began to distract me from the Odyssey 2? The answer to that is the Apple II. Actually, not even the Apple II. It was a Franklin Ace 1000, which was an Apple II clone that eventually got sued off the market. Um, my parents saw the potential in the Odyssey 2 keyboard to be an educational tool. They also, I think, very quickly cottoned on to the fact <laughs> that that potential was very much unrealized within the Odyssey 2 library of software. And so, for Christmas of... I'm thinking this was Christmas of 1981. I got a Franklin Ace 1000 with one incredibly noisy 5.25-inch disk drive and a color monitor and a few games... And I have always maintained a great deal of fondness for the Apple II because while the Odyssey II was the first video game console that was really mine, you know, we had Pong Sports 4, but that was my brother's and mine, and we fought over it like brothers. The Odyssey II was really my thing. The Apple II, or the Franklin, was my first computer. Everything that I know how to do now, the seeds for that were planted with that computer. And so I am a big fan of the Apple II. I actually have been discussing with a friend dumping an Apple II floppy to a disk image so I can finish out a game that I started programming in high school called Intergalactic Trade. And that would be, it would be an Apple II homebrew because there's Apple homebrew just like there's Odyssey II homebrew or Atari homebrew or what have you. Well, this title is also an Apple II homebrew, but this is a lot fancier than anything I was working on. The game is called Ancient Legends. It was programmed by Seth Sternberger of 8-Bit Weapon fame. If you know anything about chiptunes, you almost certainly know... You need no introduction to 8-Bit Weapon. Well, Seth has been programming this game. It started out as Lawless Legends, now it's Ancient Legends. There's, al there's also a level editor for this. It's, um, it's, really, it's really neat looking. And it's kind of like a... If you remember Bard's Tale, the Bard's Tale games for the Apple II, it's a lot like that. The interface is very much like that. So you should check that out. I will include a link with the podcast so you can go download the disc images for Ancient Legends and give it a try. Seth uh, does note that the game is kind of rated PG-13. There is some, some fighting, there is some bloodletting, all of that good stuff. 
so you should go check it out. You should also check out 8-Bit Weapons' page at Bandcamp. I am a huge fan of their music. I do my own chiptune dabblings under the, the stage name of Kasatoji. Well, I say stage name. I, I haven't been on stage doing that. Um, but Seth and Michelle are the king and queen of chiptune in my book. And they've also had an incredibly, incredibly cute baby recently. My gosh, that's a cute baby. So they could probably, uh, they could probably use your patronage over at Bandcamp for 8-Bit Weapon. I suggest you go check it out. You can download their stuff in MP3 or FLAC format. And their latest release, Disassembly Language, that is a big hit with both of my babies. Of course, you know, my babies are like, one of them is almost two, one of them is almost nine. Not really babies. But I will tell you that uh, disassembly language, that sends both of them off to sleep every night that they are here. So, big fans of that latest album. It's very sort of ambient, new age stuff. So that's the news for this month. Um, well, okay, I've got a couple of other, couple of other minor notes on projects at the logbook. I will be holding down a vendor table in late September, last weekend of... Last weekend or next to last weekend? Late September. I should have just shut up and said late September. It'll be at Consplosion in Fort Smith. I will be there with my books. I will be there with uh, loads of comics I need to unload, loads of uh, duplicate action figures I need to unload. They can be yours. Drop by, wheel and deal. Um... My oldest will also be there. He's making bead art to sell at the show. And he will be there manning the table with me. Buy some books, get them signed, buy, buy some bead art. Keep the little guy happy. And I will also remember to have my... Well, they're not Twin Galaxies trading cards, but they're you know the Walter Day trading cards. I've got a stack of these, and I've done nothing with them. I've got to remember to bring those with me to Consplosion, and... I will give one to you if you buy a book or if you buy most anything else. Hell, I've got a stack of them. I'll give one to you. How about that? Just show up. <laughs> Warp 1, the first volume of my guide to the Star Trek franchise, is nearly complete. Some content has been shifted around again. Uh, as, as I record this, I saw Star Trek Beyond last weekend, and I'd originally uh, taken the, the recent reboot movies and moved them to the fifth book. They were going to be covered in the same book as Enterprise. And I thought, no, no, let's, let's not do that, because Star Trek Beyond is, is Star Trek being back on message to such a degree. I felt it needed to be covered in the same book as the original series, because I, I love Star Trek Beyond. I, I, I could nitpick a couple of minor things, but overall I thought it was a great movie. So, with a couple of content shifts, Warp 1 is almost done. I expect it to be done very soon, and it will be available to you at Consplosion. And I may have another project that will debut at Consplosion. We'll see. Is it a book? Is it yet another podcast? Is it a previously untried new flavor of jelly-filled donut? Tune in next time, true believers, and find out. Also, I need to give a shout-out to the, the Intari Visions podcast. I don't know if you've heard that 
uh, if you haven't, you need to, you need to give it a shot. First off, it's funny as hell. It's a bunch of guys sitting around. Each one of them kind of is is the ruler of the roost of their own console. Like, you know, who else but Ferg would be the twenty six hundred guy? It's got to be Ferg. Um, but they take a game that has been ported to multiple systems, and they, you know, it's really celebrity deathmatch to figure out which is the best port. Their latest podcast, the latest Atari Visions podcast, covers Tutankham, and they include the Odyssey 2 port in this kind of knockdown dragout fight to see which version of Tutankham is the best version of Tutankham. How did the Odyssey 2 version of Tutankham weigh in next to, you know, the ColecoVision and the Atari 2600? You're going to have to listen to find out, and I will include a link to that latest Atari Visions podcast with this podcast. By the way, the Atari Visions guy have invited me to show up at some point in the future and throw down on behalf of the Odyssey 2 in some future episode. We're still hashing out what game that should be, but uh, all I can say is, it's on. It's on. I, I will show up and defend the honor of the old silver machine, although I, I really didn't have to on the uh, Tutankhamen episode. It, uh, a little minor spoiler, it fared fairly well. One last note before I get into the the guts of this week's episode of this week's episode good yeah i wish <laughs> if days were 42 hours long yes i would have time to do this every week something i wanted to bring up is the fact that i have been hemming and hawing and dragging my feet and dragging my ass and kind of dragging my knuckles a little bit trying to hash out a plan for a patreon for the logbook.com a lot of other podcasts, podcasts. A lot of my friends who have podcasts or have book projects, you know, are authors, have Patreons, and I am trying to figure out kind of what the what the rewards would be. And you know, part of the reason I kind of need to do a Patreon is that, you know, while I while I mentioned the domestic situation around here has changed, I do get to spend a significant amount of time with my kids, which is not something I'm going to give up. You know, let you know, let me spell that out for you. You know, as much as you may not like the sound of it, if it came down to me spending time with my kids or doing this podcast, uh, select game would be toast. But I have found a way to work them into it. You know, the past two episodes, my son has been player two with me. You know, sort of discovering the Odyssey Two library for the first time in his experience, and he's going to be on this one too. Nothing is more important to me than spending time with my kids. And so a Patreon, quite honestly, is the difference between me having to get a second job and not having time to talk to you about video games anymore and me being able to stay home, spend time with my kids, play video games with them, read bedtime stories to them, get on them about you know not brushing their teeth enough, that sort of thing. So... One of the things that has occurred to me is like, okay, wait a minute, hey, you know, do I need to be doing a Patreon or do I need to be doing a GoFundMe? That's a really good question, because I'm having a really, I'm having a hell of a time trying to figure out what the rewards would be on a Patreon, because you would not only be supporting the podcast, you would be supporting the books. 
and you know, and the site itself, the site itself, which I will, I will tell you, and maybe I shouldn't be fessing up to this. Uh, the site, the storage renewal for the site is the most significant expense for the logbook.com every year, and I just barely got in under the wire this year. But the reason I barely got in under the wire this year is because I have generous listeners and readers, and I have great sponsors who you see, you know, you see their ads on every page of the site, and there is a reason for that. And so, a very humble thanks to all of those people. Um, it would be great to have some more help, really, just to keep the lights on around here, to do more. There's another podcast project that has been exploding in my head that I've been running past some other people that I would really love to do. In addition to this one, not as a replacement to this one, but I need to I need to be able to be home to do that. And I need to be home for my boys. So I guess really the question is, would you support the site? Would you support the podcast if I did a Patreon? Kind of shoot me your ideas. Uh, hit me up on the Facebook page. Uh, you know my email. I've mentioned my website several times during this podcast, and you know that I am Earl at that particular domain. So I'm not a hard guy to find. That's right, Puck. Man, all the cats are going to make an appearance in this one. Okay, so the games we're covering in this episode, now that I've been whittling on for about half an hour. Jeez, Earl. The games this time around are Cosmic Conflict and Invaders from Hyperspace. Let's read the front cover blurb from Cosmic Conflict. Stunning special effects are featured in this game of intergalactic warfare. Stunning special effects? Really? <laughs> Let's go to the back cover blurb for Cosmic Conflict. It, uh... <laughs> It sheds a little bit more light on things. You are the commander of the century, and I feel like I should track down that guy. Does anyone remember the late 70s radio drama Alien Worlds? He is, I forget the actor's name. Who He both narrated it, but he also had a part. He had a character part in it. But he had this awesome voice, you know, right at the beginning of every episode, and, you know, coming back from every commercial break. And now, back to Alien Worlds. You know, and it sounds like he's got three truckloads of reverb on him. And it's like, how many packs were you smoking a day to wind up with that voice? Dude, how do you even do that? And me, I'm probably going to have to pitch myself down two octaves with auto-tune to make it sound anything like that guy. Anyway, I wish he was around because I believe that actor has died because I would totally pay him five bucks to read the following. You are the commander of the Centurion, an Earth Federation starship guarding a remote corner of the galaxy. An alien invasion fleet from the planet Bad Newsia has penetrated the galaxy's outermost defenses. If you do not destroy it, Earth will be enslaved by the enemy hordes. I just have to stop and crack up because, you know, I have to stop myself from saying, On alien worlds. 
Disintegrate enemy invasion transports with your laser blasters. Elude enemy starfighters warping in from hyperspace. This is a startlingly realistic simulation filled with remarkable special effects. Out of this world sounds on-screen enemy enemy proximity warnings. Enemy proximity warnings suffering succotash. And actual messages from Star Command. Okay, first first beef with this game right there. You get these messages from Star Command at the end of every round, whether you win or lose. Okay, here's my big beef with this game. I am a child of the 70s. I grew up with Jason of Star Command. I was totally bummed to find out that this game that had messages from Star Command uh, really had nothing to do with that Star Command. So let me tell you, before I read the manual and discovered not one reference to Jason and... Peepo and Wiki and all of that. I was like, okay, are, are the messages from James Doohan or are they from the blue-skinned guy from season two? This is awesome! Not that, Star Command. Sorry, young Earl. Okay, and... <laughs> remarkable special effects. Stunning special effects. I do not think that phrase means... What you think it means. You keep using that phrase. I do not think it means what you think it means. Both of these games, incidentally, uh, as I go through my, my Odyssey 2 shelf, I look for yeah, any record of high scores in the back, any record of what what my parents paid for these games. Back in the mists of ancient time. And I can tell you that the receipts, not the receipts, the, the, uh, the price tags are both still affixed to the boxes of both of these games. I think we bought them together. They were bought at the now-defunct Boston store at Central Mall in Fort Smith, Arkansas sometime in the early 80s for $22.95 each. Now, Cosmic Conflict is the closest thing you have to a first-person game in the Odyssey 2 library. It's not really... It's not an FPS. It's more like a cockpit shooter as I call it, which that just sounds like a double entendre waiting to happen. And it's the only such game in the Odyssey 2 library. Cosmic Conflict was programmed by Sam Overton, a rare instance of a non-sports game programmed by Sam Overton. Copyright on the box is 1978. Now, I think the reason there are not more cockpit shooters or first-person games in the Odyssey 2 library is that the graphics chip just is not... It's not suited to it. It's uh, it's kind of a it's kind of a depressing thing to finally step down and say, okay, you know what, it, it, this machine just cannot do this kind of game. The Odyssey 2, the video pack, cannot do first-person shooters, and can barely do this cockpit shooter. <laughs> the the only example I can think of something similar did not happen until the video pack G7400 Plus in Europe, and it was a pole-position type game called Trans-American Rally. That never saw the light of day in the U.S. because the, the G7400 Plus's American counterpart, the Odyssey 3, was canceled, and there are maybe a little, little over a dozen prototypes in existence in the U.S., so there was no market for that game here. Now, Cosmic Conflict is part of a special category of games that I like to go on about at great length because I if you've been to thelogbook.com you know that the main menu is kind of formatted as today in history and indeed the flagship podcast of the logbook is thelogbook.com's escape pod 
of which there are 366 little bite-sized episodes, usually under 10 minutes, sometimes well under 10 minutes. So I am... I, I like historical juxtaposition. I like putting things in a timeline and comparing and watching for influence. And there was definitely a seismic influence on video games from a little movie that came out in 1977, directed by a guy named George Lucas. You may have heard of it. It's called Star Wars. Fairly obscure thing. We haven't heard much about it in recent years. I think they did a restoration of it a while back. I, I haven't really kept up. Okay, that's, that's a load of crap. I have an action figure of BB-8. Of course I kept up. Cosmic Conflict is a specimen of this whole genre of gaming that I refer to as unlicensed Star Wars. These were games that used the iconography of Star Wars almost immediately after the movie came out. I mean, you could tell the programmers went and saw the movie, and they went home, and they said, Holy crap, there is this bandwagon I have got to jump on right now. And so you wind up with games that have uh, TIE Fighters. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. Cosmic Conflict has TIE Fighters in it. The most dangerous ships you encounter in this game, they're TIE Fighters. Other games that use TIE Fighters were um, Tunnel Hunt, which was an obscure Atari game that never got released until 1982, at which time Centuri put it out there. It, you know, which was really odd because the game was programmed in 79, and Centuri put it out there in 82 because, you know, these were the boom years and you had to have something, you had to release something. So they licensed Tunnel Hunt from Atari, and you look at it, and the game's visuals and the gameplay mechanics scream 1979 at you. It's kind of a, a time warp. Starfire by Exidy. That is, that is the prime example. That is the patient zero of the unlicensed Star Wars video game genre. Starfire was. Because you had Star Destroyers in that. And, you know, they looked like Star Destroyers. And you had TIE Fighters. And the the title font used in the attract mode on Exidy Starfire. It's the Star Wars font. <laughs> I don't know how they didn't get sued. I'm glad they didn't. You had games with trenches. You had Starbird, which was a vector game where you're going down a trench. You had Star Strike on the Intellivision, which was kind of the raster version of Starbird. You had the arcade game Space Encounter, which was all about going down a trench. Although, actually, I think Space Encounter... I may need to double-check that. Space Encounter may have come out at the same time as Star Wars. It's, it's trench warfare may be a bit of a coincidence. You have games where you're doing these attack runs on Star Destroyers, like Dreadnought Factor on the Intellivision, which is one of my favorite Intellivision games, Dreadnought Factor is. Cosmic Conflict definitely belongs to the unlicensed Star Wars genre. The closest thing you can find to Cosmic Conflict on any of the other systems, I'm going to say, is Imagic's Star Voyager on the Atari 2600. And Star Voyager is a much more... It, well, not much more complex, but it's more complex than Cosmic Conflict. Cosmic Conflict never makes you, you know, drive through the Stargate to get to the next level. You either blow up 15 enemy ships and stay alive, or you fail to do that. Either way, you get your message from Star Command, and you need to hit reset, and you're on your way. Oh, here's our first TIE fighter right off the bat. First thing to uh, keep in mind about cos Cosmic Conflict is that you were... Oh, I got TIE-fightered. 
it. I fired it again. Okay. Where was I? What was I saying before I was being attacked by TIE Fighters? Repeatedly. <clears throat> First off, your enemy cargo ships look like fish. You could totally set this game in an aquarium and you'd be okay. I'm gonna try to get this one. Except I'm going to fail miserably. thing to keep in mind about the controls in Cosmic Conflict is that they are reversed. They're sort of like an airplane. You, uh, you push up to go down, down to go up, and so on. So, it's uh, flight simulator controls. And lining them up, knocking them out. Of course, these are all very fish-like cargo ships. Apparently, I'm only sharp enough this morning to uh, get the TIE Fighters that are sitting perfectly still. And not even all of them. <clears throat> Three ships to go. Oh! And I'm not doing well in this at all. Okay, got another one. Oh, got that one from quite a long way away. Okay. I have the, you reach a point. Ah, message from Star Command. Cease fire. Enemy destroyed. No, really? Let's try that again. <laughs> you reach a point in the game where you've killed enough... Uh, You've killed enough of the cargo ships that it stops giving you the low-hanging fruit and just throws TIE Fighters at you non-stop. At least five of the ships you destroy per game have to be the TIE Fighters. Every time one of the TIE Fighters hits you, it costs 50 points off your energy. Got that one. I missed a cargo ship. I'm suddenly getting a bunch of uh, 
cargo ships with these tricky diagonal flight patterns. Oh, TIE fighter. So I'm down to 653 on my energy. Every shot that you fire costs you, uh, costs you points. Oh, and every second that you're in flight, you lose one point of energy. So technically, I'm actually doing worse here than I was in the last game. Oh, TIE fighter again. Down to 506, and I have five ships left to go. Gotcha, TIE Fighter. Uh, TIE Fighter. 401. I'm in lousy shape here. Can you guys just give me a TIE Fighter that sits still? Because as bad as I'm doing this this morning, ow! 304 left on my energy. Where? Where is it? Oh, there it is. One left to go. I'm down to 251 on my energy. Yes! Message from Star Command. You suck. No. Cease fire. Enemy destroyed. Okay, so really the messages aren't that random. I got out of that one by the skin of my teeth. Only 233 energy points left. Ow. Aliens. Every year at this time, the National Space Administration requires all aliens to register. Forms are available at your local post office. Those without forms must appear, however briefly, at the Bureau's Astral Offices on Nooker Street. Aliens, register now! Okay, had to play you a little bit of fire sign theater there. <laughs> that was Cosmic Conflict from 1978. Sam Overton's Odyssey 2 cockpit shooter. By the way, Cosmic Conflict was Cosmic Conflict everywhere it went. It did not have an alternate title in any other territories. Interesting. It is kind of a snappy name, though, isn't it? Cosmic Conflict. Sort of like that, uh, that weird short story I wrote in high school. What was it? The Great Catatonic Cat Cataclysm. More on that another time, and I do mean more on. Okay, moving on. Invaders from hyperspace. Ed Averett, we're back to Ed Averett. I don't think we can swing an episode of this podcast through the air without hitting poor Ed Averett. This game was released in 1979. It did have an alternate title in the European territories where it was known as Laser War. I'm not sure which one of those is better and which one of those is worse. The front cover blurb from Invaders from Hyperspace which, by the way, was a, uh, another twenty two ninety five game from the Boston store in Fort Smith. Science fiction becomes science fact in this realistic war of the worlds. 
Really? <laughs> Tell me, would those be alien worlds? Okay. Swarms, this is the back cover blurb, swarms of sinister alien spaceships materialize and attack outpost solar systems in a remote corner of the United Planet's interstellar galactic empire? I'm sorry, let me back up again. The United Planet's interstellar galactic empire. Doesn't the fact that it's galactic make it interstellar? I mean, this is kind of like MST3K the movie. Here, Universal International Pictures. Well, doesn't the fact that it's universal make it international? Wow. Science fiction turns science fact in this incredibly fast-moving and realistic war of the worlds. You'll need lightning reflexes and instantaneous strategic insights to protect all the planets in your two vulnerable solar systems from the invasion fleet. Digital scoring and sync sound action inside. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Okay, sorry, I just kind of went off the rails there. <laughs> A theater stellar speedway. Now, Ed Averett programmed this. He also programmed a game that we covered back in the edutainment episode called I've Got Your Number. And I think I mentioned Invaders from Hyperspace in that episode because both Invaders from Hyperspace and I've Got Your Number have these kind of orbiting things going on. Invaders from Hyperspace has these shapes and numbers orbiting. You have to pick the one that matches the little algebraic equation that appears at the bottom of the screen. Invaders from hyperspace, you have to match the color to the color of your ship. Because if your ship gets blown up, you have to wait for, the, for one of the planets orbiting one of the stars. Or actually, these may be moons orbiting planets. Because you couldn't really launch a spaceship from a star. I mean, I hate to start trying to apply real physics and astronomy to this stuff, but a star is not a viable launching platform for a space fleet because it would melt it. Ed, come on. Ed probably didn't do these write-ups. <laughs> this is probably some, some vintage Bradford and Coote writing here, you know, from the United Planets Interstellar Galactic Empire. So I, I think there was some... I think there was maybe some reuse of code here to get these planets to orbit very much like the, uh, the equation variables orbiting in I've Got Your Number. Anyway, since I'm already running way over on this episode, me and E are here to play Invaders from Hyperspace. There's nothing to shoot yet. Hang on. Here's the UFOs. Oh! Okay, press your button and push up. Okay, the, I guess the middle planet can never be destroyed. Okay, we've got to gang up on these guys. Don't collide with the planets. And we kill each other.
Okay, yeah. There's a winner when one of us gets ten UFOs. And surely you got it. Yeah. But you might get it this time. Or ten UFOs will get me. What? I shot one? I did too shoot one. Liars? Oh, they got both of us. Shoot a planet, please. I'm trying to. Until they shoot me. Okay, there you go. Peace then. What? I shot it. It shot me, and it shot you. into each other. What? You're doing better than me. You've got six this round. I don't even have a planet to come off of. Planets, I wonder why you can't lift off of one. Are you off the screen somewhere? I think you were. Yes, I was. Oh, there you go. UFOs are getting meaner. <laughs> One whole solar system's pretty much gone. 
you. What? I shot it! Apparently oh not. I hate this game. Hey, you won. You only got half. Yeah, they got pretty tough on that round. How we all crashed into each other. What? Whoops, he shot me. No, I meant to. Oh, <laughs> okay then. You gonna do anything for me? I think they shot each other. this round. I guess you don't get points for crashing into them, taking them out that way. this one yeah okay danger hides in the stars this is the world of jason of star command a space age soldier of fortune determined to stop the most sinister force in the universe dragos master of the cosmos aiding jason in his battle against evil is a talented team of experts all working together in a secret section of space academy Jason of Star Command. So, those were some invaders, and they were definitely from hyperspace. Interesting dichotomy between these two games. I mean, first off, you have games from two different programmers treating, you know, space and sci-fi topics and plot lines. But it's interesting that uh, you have, pretty early in the Odyssey 2 library, you have Cosmic Conflict, which is a, a single-player game. Of course, the AI needed for that game probably took up any memory that would have been used for managing two players in. Of course, you can't really do a two-player cockpit shooter uh, because, you, you know, you have more than one person in a cockpit. You wind up with a stormtrooper in the back who you've never met who has a number and not a name and is not a free man, but is about to be. I don't know what I'm talking about there. 
It's kind of interesting that the video game industry grew away from multiplayer and is now coming back to it. My son and I, who you just heard there, we have been playing a lot of Pokemon Go, which is just a wonderful invention. I love that game. It's a huge game changer. I can't... I can't tell you the, the last time I felt so enthused about a new game mechanic. And I realize it's not new. I, I am aware of Ingress, which was also by Niantic and uses, you know, much the same gameplay mechanics as Pokemon Go, except that Pokemon Go has this very popular license and is thus getting all the attention. But, yeah, I haven't felt this jazzed about a game. I haven't felt like a game was this much of, and you're going to have to forgive me for using this phrase, a game changer, since, uh, I don't know, what, what would it be? Mario Maker? Katamari Damashi? I, you know, I can't tell you. But it's this interesting cyclical thing that games go through between single-player and multiplayer. You know, you couldn't play the original Magnavox Odyssey with just one person unless you were going to very careful. you know, if, unless you're going to do what I do at conventions if I bring the Odyssey and very carefully set up. I'm, I'm looking at my waveform. Puck is meowing about something. I have no idea what. And there he goes charging across the house. You're right, Puck. Anyway, um, <laughs> cats, cats. It's just interesting that, uh, you know, the original Odyssey requires two players. It demands it. Uh, the only thing you can achieve is one player with the original Magnavox Odyssey. You can set things up in a loop and then watch someone come along and break the loop, <laughs> which has always been my experience anytime I've shown the Odyssey at uh, GlitchCon or OVGE or anything like that. Anyway, that's it for Select Game. We are loving the aliens. We are on Alien Worlds. <clears throat> and I've just ruined my voice for the day doing that two or three times in the past hour. Hope you've enjoyed listening. Next time, I think we're going to read some funny pages. That's all the time we have for the Select Game Podcast. You can hear Select Game on iTunes, Stitcher, and ThrowbackNetwork.net. And you can also subscribe through the RSS feed. You'll find the podcast itself and occasional goodies associated with it at www.thelogbook.com slash selectgame. If you really dig Select Game, also check out the 365-day-a-year Escape Pod Geek History Podcast at thelogbook.com. And donations toward the site's upkeep are always gladly accepted at PayPal, or via my Amazon wish lists. You can also support the podcast by buying select game t-shirts and other goodies at redbubble.com. Look under user The Logbook. Phosphor.fossils, a comprehensive timeline of the golden era of video games, including the Odyssey 2, can be downloaded at thelogbook.com, which is also where you can find the books I've written about Doctor Who, Forp 1 and Forp 2. Feel free to drop me a line at the Facebook page for thelogbook.com, via Twitter at logbookguy, or email me at earl at thelogbook.com. Select Game Expanded Memories of the Odyssey 2 is a production of thelogbook.com and was written and produced by Earl Green. Music performed by Kasatochi, available for free download at thelogbook.com.
Their lives and adventures become our story on the threshold of alien worlds. (laughs) 